You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter at The Post. And today we are looking at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on hospitals. My guests today are Dr. Ann Zink, Chief Medical Officer for the state of Alaska, and Dr. Sharif Elmahal. He is the Chief uh, CEO of University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. He's also New Jersey's former health commissioner. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks Great to be here. Us. Thank you. And a quick reminder to our audience, you can chime in too. Just go on Twitter, tweet your questions and comments to the handle post live. We will look for those and try and work them in throughout the conversation. But first, since I have the microphone, I've got a question or two for the doctors. And Dr. Zink, let's start with you. Alaska has had one of the highest daily reported case counts of COVID-19 in the past few weeks. Now it appears things are getting better. Cases have fallen by about a third in the past week. Do you think your state is through the worst of it? Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me here and having a conversation about public health and healthcare. I am hopeful that Alaska is starting to really come down after an Omicron surge. We had a really bad Delta wave as well. So both of those surges really stretch our hospital system as well as our healthcare capacity. And it's great to see the numbers improving. And Dr. Elnahal, New Jersey is also seeing a decline in cases and hospitalizations. The state is also dropping mask requirements in March. Do you think that we're at a point that easing COVID restrictions is the best move? Uh, so thank you so much for having me again, Dan. I think uh, we are at that point, and I'll uh, base my answer in a couple of uh, foundational points here. The first is that we are, in fact, in uh, pretty much a lull uh, right now. We're very much on the downtrend uh, with not only cases, but hospitalizations. Uh, and the rate of transmission, which is a metric that essentially indicates how many additional people any given person with COVID-19 will infect is now well below one, it's around 0.5, which is in fact among the lowest uh, levels we've seen that metric uh, in some time. And so I think objectively we're in a much better place now and most epidemiologists are predicting that because of the population level immunity that all of the, the uh, Omicron infections have conferred in the population that we may be in a lull for many months. And so it's important with these restrictions to afford people the time uh, of reprieve to allow uh, kids to take off their masks in the school should parents choose uh, that to allow for indoor masking to have a reprieve as well. Those things are important because if we do end up surging again, for example, with a new variant, uh, it'll be important to at least have given people a break as we do that. So Dr. Zink, Dr. Elnahal is talking about the lull that we are entering as cases drop off and the mental health break that many of us are so eager for. At the same time, what happens if there is an upsurge again? Do you feel like we are in a position where the folks in Alaska will be receptive to that message? How would you be able to get them ready if we have to go back to more restrictions? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I think we are all exhausted with, from COVID, from public health professionals to the frontline healthcare workers to the public. And I think what we've really seen throughout this pandemic is that public health and health isn't just a, a subset of things that happen in the hospital. A healthy economy is built on healthy people. School health is built on healthy kids and healthy teachers being in place. Tribal health is public health. All of these things are connected and working together. 
But ultimately, mitigation efforts only work as well as people choosing to use them. So be that masking, ventilation, distancing, making the choice to get vaccinated. And so I do think it is upon governments, it's upon leaders, it's upon scientists to make sure that we're explaining the information and empowering individual citizens with the resources and the tools to be able to have to keep themselves uh, and their communities safe and healthy. Um, but also pulling those things off uh, when it is time to pull off. You know, Alaska is bigger than Montana, Texas, and Wyoming, excuse me, Montana, Texas, and California combined. And so we've had certain communities that have really kept COVID out by doing a lot of testing prior to people coming in. We have some regions that are greater than 95% of those who are eligible who are vaccinated. And we have other regions which are less than 30% are vaccinated. So what this looks like in different places around just our state, around the country, look very different depending on those choices of mitigation efforts that those communities have embarked on. And we have a lot more tools now. So we really need to use 2022 tools for 2022 challenges with COVID. We were a really different place two years ago. And it's fantastic that we've come so far with having such incredible efficacious and safe vaccines and so many more tools and better understanding this virus than we ever had before. Dr. Zing, just to stay with you for a second, you mentioned these other components of recovery thinking about the economic case, reopening schools and so on. You're a health official. How do you take that information into account? Do you consult with economic experts, schooling experts and so on? Or do you see your role as very narrowly focused around healthcare and you're letting other people make the distinction on those issues? Yeah, so you know, when I took this job, I took it partially because of the mission of the Department in Health and Social Services, and that is the health and well-being of COVID. Uh, excuse me, the health and well-being of Alaskans, not just COVID. And so staying focused on that bigger picture has always been the goal. And so that is the physical health, that is the mental health, and that also has to fit into economic health. If people don't have housing, if they don't have running water or sewer, that has a direct impact on their physical health as well. So our mission from day one has been the health and well-being of Alaskans. And we work with people all across the state. Um, I'm an emergency department physician as uh, by training. I'm not the cardiologist. I'm not the orthopedic surgeon. And I see my role here is very similar. I'm not the virologist. I'm not the economist. I am not the epidemiologist, but I get the honor and privilege of working with them every single day for the challenge in front of us and promoting the health and well-being of my patients, which are the people of the state that I serve. And so bringing those expertise together and it looks really different in different states and in different regions at different times. And so we just try to create as much two-way conversation and provide tools and resources to make sure that each community has the tools it needs to stay healthy and well. Well, as we try and understand how COVID looks, New Jersey is a somewhat different place than Alaska, maybe just a bit, maybe just a little smaller. Dr. Elnahal, I'm curious if you can take our viewers inside your hospital. What is life like right now in trying to fight the pandemic? What, what picture can you paint for people who are curious about the COVID situation where you are? Yeah, we certainly are smaller, but we have 9 million people packed into uh, our small landmass, so it gets interesting here. Uh, what I'll say is uh, we have a couple of different uh, interesting dynamics in our hospital right now. So we peaked at about 150 hospitalizations earlier this month at the end of last month. Uh, and right now we're at about 30 people with COVID-19 diagnosis in the hospital. That just means they had a positive test of COVID-19 when they came in. But throughout the entire Omicron wave, about 60% of our patients were here with COVID, but not for COVID, which really uh, has a lot of implications on what hospitalization data actually tells you. Arguably, many of the patients in the 60% category, we would have seen anyway, the folks who simply tested positive incidentally 
uh, when they came in. And so when you talk about how this informs policymakers when they say we have X number of hospitalizations or in many states, X number of deaths, because there isn't that much of a differentiation between somebody who dies and happens to have COVID-19 or not, all those things have implications on what policies need to be done, especially around mandates. Uh, which really should only be instituted where the global risk of a population is under threat unless you force people to do this or that, whether it's a mask mandate or a vaccination verification mandate or what have you. The reality is for this specific wave, 60% of our patients only had an incidental diagnosis. On top of that, we've done other analyses in our hospital that actually narrowed down further the number of people who are still ill with COVID-19 in our hospital. In other words, we have folks recovering from COVID-19. They're here for six, 10, 15 days, uh, and they're completely recovered from their COVID illness. And our clinicians have determined that they're not here for COVID certainly, but also not here because of a complication related to COVID. And so all of this spells really important implications on hospitalization data, but certainly the uh, link between infections and cases and hospitalizations has also been disaggregated. In other words, using cases in and of themselves to make these really tough decisions on restrictions, uh, I don't think is the right move anymore. And we really have to drill down and understand what hospitalization data really means, especially if it's going to inform our policymakers going forward. So to repeat back what I just heard from you, the case numbers are increasingly not helpful in understanding what the picture looks like on the ground. And even though the hospitalization numbers have gone up quite a bit, if you look closely, many of those patients are not presenting primarily for COVID. But there has been debate over whether we're making too much doctor of, of our patients with COVID, are they there for COVID? Because ultimately there are lots of hospital beds and hospital workers engaged in this fight. Well, certainly uh, the hospitalization data in that category of people with COVID is murky. Some of the patients are here because of a complication, let's say dehydration or kidney failure, because they had a COVID infection recently, I would of course consider those patients to be additive. In other words, COVID led them to go to the hospital. Uh, but for many of them, that's not the case. And so more nuance when it comes to informing how we interpret hospitalization data uh, is going to be really important. I would actually argue what has really strained hospitals and hospital systems throughout the Omicron wave, which is a very different dynamic than we've seen in earlier surges of COVID-19, has been the impact on staff. The fact is our staffing shortage at the end of last month in the beginning of January, or two months ago, in the beginning of January, uh, has been the number of employees who had to be out due to COVID or a COVID-related reason because of the rules. Of course, many of our employees were out because they were sick, of course, anybody who is sick or feeling ill or has a fever needs to be out. But the fact was that when the CDC reduced the time frame out of work required for healthcare workers from 10 days to five days, that may have been among the most helpful moves that the federal government made to allow us to withstand this surge. The fact is we had many patients coming in with acute needs that were not COVID related throughout this entire time frame. And that one move allowed us to shore up our staffing in addition to the incredibly helpful members of the military that visited our hospital and are still here as a result of the Biden administration's help. But I think as we look back at this in retrospect, uh, and this is not something that anybody expected or public health officials could even really expect, that move really helped us actually survive because having enough staff, clinical staff especially, at the bedside 
is absolutely important for patient care. I'd like to encourage folks watching to submit questions on Twitter by uh, replying to the post live handle. I would like to also stay on this issue of workforce in hospitals. Dr. Elnahal, you mentioned the help from the federal government, the military workers who came in to support your institution. Are you asking for an extension uh, from the federal government to allow them to stay longer? Uh, we actually will not be. Uh, we have really benefited from their help. They'll be here through uh, the middle of February. Uh, what I can tell you is that we are in a much better staffing situation right now, thankfully. Uh, we now have uh, just an, under 200 people out of work for all reasons. And the worst throughout all of this, we were in the 350 to 400 range. And asymmetrically, the clinicians in our hospital were affected. And so what that means is uh, we're in a much better place because infections are down and the Omicron wave may have actually uh, got us closer and closer to herd immunity in our population. We're not seeing anywhere near the case rates among our employees that we were seeing even just two to three weeks ago. And so, again, this portends for a good period of time, hopefully, where we will have a lull, but we should not be taking our eye off the ball in terms of pre preparation for the next wave. That means really establishing and recalibrating our metrics to understand when restrictions do need to be in place, making sure that we deliver oral therapeutics as widely as possible. These are blockbuster drugs that actually really reduce the severity of disease. And again, focusing on metrics that really indicate what hospital strain and healthcare mm -hmm. system capacity strain uh, really means. Dr. Zink, how about you in the state of Alaska? Have your hospitals been affected, just like Dr. Elnahal was discussing in New Jersey, with the Omicron wave coming through, sickening staff, and leading to shortages? Yeah, no, similar story here in Alaska. I think one of the differences, particularly amongst the South and then again Alaska, was how hard the Delta wave hit us. With Delta, we saw patients being hospitalized for much longer lengths of stay. You know, our average hospitals were about 26, 25, 25, 26% of the people in the hospital were there because of COVID. Some hospitals were greater than 50% at that time. Uh, and that was really overwhelming staffing and staff capacity. We weren't able to really pull on the National Guard because the National Guard was doing a lot of other medical work in the state. And so we worked with FEMA to have a series of GSA contractors, uh, contracted healthcare professionals who were able to come into the state. We've had over 700 who have come in. Those contracts take a while to kind of get up and running, but also uh, continue to stay. So we currently still have about 200 of those workers in state as we're slowly wearing those off. Then when the Omicron surge hit, I think that we had a better way of our hospitals working with each other, particularly our rural areas. We see a lot of inequities in healthcare distribution across America, particularly when you think of rural and urban care and making sure that every hospital and every Alaska, no matter where they were, were able to get and access care and we were able to transfer the most critical patients to the resources they needed. We actually built up hospitals to have additional capacity like dialysis that were very short during the Omicron wave. And so, or excuse me, during the Delta wave. So this Omicron wave has been uh, easier on the hospitals. Patients are less sick. They're in the hospital for shorter periods of time. And just as previously mentioned, our biggest surge was in just staff being out, but we had some of that additional capacity from these uh, FEMA contractors that we had beforehand. And so this wave uh, has not impacted our hospitals the same way as, as the Delta wave, which has been great. And it's great to see more people vaccinated, boosted, and, and more people have had infection, which does provide some additional protection. So hopefully collectively, we are moving our way through this uh, as these bumps in the pandemic continue and we're able to get to a better place. I appreciate the optimism. So I apologize for asking what may be a pessimistic question, but it's coming in from our audience. 
this is a question submitted earlier from Gregory Landman of Georgia, who asked, and we're not just talking about the Delta and Omicron waves, but have two years of the pandemic broken our hospitals. I have seen a negative impact on rural hospitals that lack the resources of their urban, suburban-based peers. Dr. Zink, based on what you were just saying, can you take this one? Yeah, no, Gregory, I hear you. Um, you know, I think that our rural hospitals have always been challenged. I think that the gaps and inequities within our current healthcare system have grown into chasms during this pandemic. And we see that in the inequities that we see in uh, both racial outcomes, but also in what we see with rural versus urban divide. We see a lot of people leaving the healthcare system as a whole, and we see many hospitals really being devastated uh, by what has been uh, now going on three years of just an incredibly challenging time. And so I think the more that we can approach this with understanding, with kindness, the more that we can really get back to that patient-physician or patient-healthcare provider relationship, um, the more that we can support healthcare workers, the mental health of healthcare workers, it has been strained prior to this pandemic. It has only been magnified during this pandemic. And I think that we really need to structurally look at the way that we uh, address in inequities, particularly rural and urban divide in our healthcare delivery system. We have a very urban centric delivery care system as well as the way that we train healthcare providers. Um, we're working on that. You know, GME funding is now making it easier for people to train in rural areas, um, but we are all in this together. And what happens in a rural area does impact an urban area and vice versa. So I really appreciate that question. And this is where I think we really need to focus how we rebuild our healthcare infrastructure and our public health infrastructure um, moving forward. Dr. Zink, my colleague Akila Johnson recently wrote a detailed story about the challenge of serving Alaska Natives who often live in tough to reach communities. They struggled with poor health outcomes before the pandemic, as I think you alluded to. Are you using this moment in, in any tangible way to try and improve the safety net for them? Is there an intervention you've overseen to make sure that that community is better equipped moving forward? Yeah, honestly, I cannot think of a better partner during this pandemic than our tribes. We have 226 independent sovereign tribes in the state of Alaska and their leadership, their partnership, uh, their history, the fact that they were really decimated by the 1918 pandemic and every pandemic and epidemic that has come through this world that we have documented has unfortunately disproportionately impacted Alaska Native people. That oral history played a huge role in the way that we were able to respond to and continue to respond to this pandemic on a regular basis. So um, for example, early on, you know, testing was coming in via different resources. We were manufacturing our own testing and we found that if we were able to get communities the resources they, were they needed, they were able to really um, mitigate and control the pandemic in, in new and unique ways. Um, they were able to identify cases early. They were able to do housing and quarantine. If you look at our vaccine rates, they're actually highest amongst our communities that are high, have the highest rate of Alaska Native people. You know, our Eastern Aleutian tribes is greater than 90% right now vaccinated in that region. And we built every aspect of our response in partnership with our tribes. So for example, our vaccine task force at every single level had a tribal partner as well as a state partner so that we could really see what the other one was doing and be able to move forward. And a lot of our success, you know, we led the nation for about a month and then most people vaccinated per capita was because of the incredible ingenuity of our tribal health partners. 
who are getting vaccine out by dog sled to elders in their house or man baskets between fishing vessels or snow machines on airplanes that were moving back and forth. They know their community. They know how to share information. They know what is a priority. Now, I love being on meetings with whaling captains where they're the ones who are leading in the meeting and I am just there to share the information about COVID and they can make it apply to their community. So I really think we all need to lean into those trusted leaders in our community. What that looks like in New Jersey versus Upiavik are very different, but regardless, be it a church leader or a whaling captain, these are our leaders in our communities that we need to continue to partner with to make sure that we're all thinking about uh, the health and well-being of our communities. I'd, I'd love to hear from Dr. Elna Hall if he's tapped the whaling uh, captains in, in Newark. But in the meantime, I have a question that just came in from Twitter from Wendy Cronin. Dr. Elmahal, this is for you. You noted that there are therapeutics now to treat COVID, but Wendy says she's heard they're in very short supply. How available are those therapeutics? Thanks, Wendy, for the question. They're not available enough yet, and we did expect this. There does take, does take some time to ramp up manufacturing and distribution. What I can tell you is they really are a game changer. We have extraordinary vaccines uh, that did help us, by the way, in New Jersey, prevent a lot of hospitalizations, uh, if not as much cases with the Omicron wave. It certainly did uh, prevent a lot of hospitalizations, and that is the most important preventative factor. But the fact is you're not going to be able to prevent every case of COVID-19, especially if future variants are even more transmissible. And so Paxlovid, which is just one example, it's Pfizer's product, uh, can reduce the combined endpoint of hospitalization and death, that risk by 80% in high-risk people. And so getting this into every nursing home, into every pharmacy, into every hospital will be extraordinarily important. And I think it's going to be one of the criteria for us to really consider being in the endemic phase. In other words, being able to go back to almost every aspect of normal life while protecting the most vulnerable. These therapeutics will be a huge key to doing that. We've talked about some of the optimism around falling case numbers and, and the therapeutics that Dr. Elnahal just mentioned. Of course, there are still obstacles, whether resistance to being vaccinated, misinformation that is spread around COVID. Dr. Zink, I've read about some of the fights in Alaska. Uh, some of your critics who are against vaccines have even called for your removal from office. You told the Anchorage Daily News that these critiques only make you, quote, more committed to your job. How do you build public support for public health measures in the face of such resistance? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, again, I'm a practicing emergency medicine physician. I usually see people on their worst day at their worst moment. And we all come to things with our own history and our own perspective. And I think that we need to continue to meet people with empathy and giving each other space and grace. Um, everything that we do in life has risk, everything from vaccine to not getting vaccinated. And I think continuing to be honest, to be clear, to be transparent, and to be empathetic, I think we have so much more in common than we have apart, that those uh, conversations are, are part of what drives me in my a job in emergency medicine and in my job in public health. It's about finding common ground between people and really sharing the fact that we have a united mission of trying to be as healthy and well as we possibly can be. And I am not here to force people to make their decisions. I'm here to short, share info, information and resources. I'm also here to try to make the system better. So like those limited therapeutics that are coming out, that they're widely available across the state and that people know where to get them and how to get them. So that's a lot of the time and effort uh, that we do. 
But I, I think that there's been too much divide between vaccinated and unvaccinated or which type of treatment. The reality is medicine and life is complex and nuanced and is a body of knowledge that continues to pivot and change. And I think that the more we find the commonality between each other, the more we're able to find uh, that common space of health and wellness. Given those challenges and the complexities of medicine, do you think it's still worthwhile to try and encourage unvaccinated people to get the shot or, or have we moved beyond a point where that effort is, is paying off? Yeah, I really love that you asked that question, Dan, because I, I get it all the time. Well, people have made up their mind. They're not making any difference. I mean, Alaska is a much smaller state and population than New Jersey. You know, we only have about 730,000 people. But, you know, I get the report every day and we're got about 2000 people every single week who make the decision to get their very first COVID-19 vaccine. And so we see people making that decision on a regular basis. When I'm in the emergency department, I love asking people, do you have any questions about the vaccine? I'm not here to judge their decision to get vaccinated. I'm there to be a resource to partner with them to make sure that they've got access to credible information about COVID and about vaccine. And it's amazing how many people, you know, even this far into the pandemic will say, yeah, I actually do. I saw these uh, questions on Facebook. I saw this really bad outcome on Twitter. Uh, I saw this on Instagram and I'm really scared and I don't know what this means. And it's really incredibly rewarding to sit down and talk through that fear uh, and talk about the data, talk about what we know, what we don't know, uh, and allow people to make that individual decision for them. So uh, I, as a physician, will never give up on helping to provide information and resources to make my patients as healthy and well as they possibly can be. And that includes sharing the just honestly miraculous vaccines that we have. Watching the science over vaccines has been a little bit like watching a man land on the moon. I think we should be celebrating it in a totally uh, wonderful way to watch what has happened in the scientific community coming together over these past two years. It has been remarkable to see the world coming together around science. Uh, and I hope that we can build on that collaboration and that partnership. I've been reading Gregory Zuckerman's book about the development of the vaccines. He works for some other newspapers, so I probably shouldn't pump it up too much, but it's a fascinating tale of just exactly what you lay out, the, the science that came together so quickly. We only have a few minutes left, so I, I'd like to think about where we're going from here. And Dr. Elnahal, what, what are the takeaways for hospitals and health systems ahead of the next pandemic? What are the biggest lessons learned from the past few years, and how do we implement them? Well, I think the first uh, lesson is just recognizing the most important systemic risks to the healthcare system. And I would argue even more broadly to public health right now, which is the shortages we're seeing in healthcare staffing of all types, not just workers uh, in hospitals. You have people who are still coping with post-traumatic stress from the earlier waves of COVID-19 we had, especially in April of 2020, when the New York metro area was the epicenter of the entire pandemic globally. We're still seeing folks uh, with pathology from that time, uh, you know, folks who have uh, deep mental health issues because of that in our own staff. Uh, we've also seen a record number of retirements from not only uh, the age 45 to 60 nurses, but flight from some of the younger nurses and other healthcare workers just entering the workforce to either other fields entirely uh, or to staffing agencies that, of course, charge them back, you know, two to three X uh, to the healthcare institutions. And of course, then that becomes an uh, issue of affordability, especially to safety net and rural hospitals. And so I think that's going to be a major thing we have to start planning for now. Uh, the pandemic preparedness uh, that we need to undertake really will depend on having uh, the skilled uh, folks available to treat our patients. Uh, the second is just making sure that we transition from this idea of a just-in-time mentality for healthcare to a just-in-case 
mentality for healthcare. In other words, we were operating on razor thin uh, inventory margins here for PPE. We were operating on razor thin uh, medication uh, inventory margins because that's what the economics required in, in running healthcare systems and hospitals. That just can't happen in the future. We can have future variants of COVID-19, but any pathogen that will really strain us and make the richest country in the world experience what we did in 2020, which is really inexcusable when it comes to having the resources needed for care. Um, and then finally, when it comes to enhancing the pipeline, making medical education uh, and clinician education more widely available, loan forgiveness, all these things are needed to build the pipeline of the future and a much more diverse pipeline, by the way, to treat uh, the you know majority minority communities that exist, but also again, as Dr. Zink mentioned, uh, rural providers and all the unique challenges there as well. Dr. Zink, we have about 30 seconds, but I'd be curious for your perspective on strategies for next time. Yes, thank you. I would agree with all of those points. You know, the three points that I would usually hit on are the fact that healthcare really impacts all of us, as previously mentioned, from economics to safety to security to tribal health. These are all related to public and public health. It's going to take all of us to find solutions to really emphasizing that science is a process. And the more that we understand that process, the more we can trust it and move on. And then what I like to call the four eyes, that informatics is critical for us to understanding the process, to making sure that we have timely and transparent information, that we all have different incentives and making sure that we understand those incentives and those reasons, and then continuing to address the inequities that we talked about. I think that thinking about those three buckets are how we rebuild our healthcare system and our public health system moving forward. I like the I structure, informatics, information, and equities, and the one other that I'm somewhat blanking on. But regardless, thank you both for making time today. Dr. Elnahal, Dr. Zink, really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.